like I Hold your head up high Till you find the bluebird of happiness You will find greater peace of mind Knowing there's a bluebird of happiness And when he sings to you Welcome back to the Philip K. Dick Book Club. In this episode of this podcast, I'll be looking at uh, a little bit more of Dick's 1967 novel, Counterclock World. So if you're just joining us, please go back and listen to my previous episode where I looked at chapters one through five of Counterclock World. We'll be picking up uh, with chapter six. But just a quick recap. Um, in the first five chapters of Counterclock World, we learn that the major defining feature of this world isn't its authoritarian government, isn't uh, frontier colonies with, you know, where drug addicts are living in hovels, or it's not um, in interstellar war. All these themes we've seen many times in Dick's novels. This is actually something pretty unique. This is a world in which significant aspects of life are running backwards in time. Not all aspects of time run backwards. It's not a complete inverse, but many aspects. Some comedic, but two very serious aspects of of life are really working backwards. One is knowledge, and this is actually a man-made thing because as this, what's called the Hobart phase, this kind of reverse of time, you know, goes through life, humans begin to destroy knowledge at the moment where it should have been created. So we're never like uh, more advanced than we perhaps should be in a time, at any one time. And the major institution that's responsible for, for doing this is of course the library. Now instead of preserving knowledge, they do the opposite, which is destroying knowledge or eradicating knowledges. And the class of people who do this are called ERADs or simply eradicators. And they're some of the most powerful people on the planet. Now, the main way that the Hobart face manifests is that it awakens the dead. So um, from whenever the, to people started going back since ever since this time started flipping backwards, people have been waking up in their graves needing to get out. Uh, people who run work in companies called vitariums help them get out, revive them. It's called go through a, actually a sac religious sacrament of kind of rebirth, and then you know sort of sell them to people who might be interested in them. And this is how they recruit their their losses for the you know the cost of of doing business. Um, now, in the f we we're mostly focused on one particular company, run uh, one of these Viterium companies run by a man named Sebastian Marcus, who himself is a, a oldborn, meaning he was in a grave at one point not long ago, just ten years earlier, and he has awakened and he's coming to terms with his his new life. Right, eventually he'll get younger and younger and younger until finally he'll become a child and then a baby and then he'll crawl into a woman's womb any woman until some sex act will actually abolish him from existence. So um, there are other people who seem to be born the normal way and it's not clear really how they age or if they age slower. It's a little bit ambiguous. But anyways, this company, uh, Sebastian Hermes's uh, Vitarium, has learned that they, they've seen, they found the body of the Anarch peak. The Anarch was a leader of an African-American kind of new religious movement uh, that's since been taken over by others. It's called the Udi movement and the people who follow it are called the Udite, Uditi. And they believe kind of in a collective religious experience through, through drug use. All their theology is not fully explained in the novel. 
Um, there's actually several shout outs to Malcolm X. So definitely on Dick's mind are the new religious movements led by African-Americans. And we can get into a little side about that, but enough to, it's enough to say at this point that in the early 20th century, after African-Americans started to move to cities in larger numbers, thanks to the, the Great Migration, you started to see uh, new religious experiences pursued by African-Americans. Now, some of them are just kind of variants of Christianity, but others are new, entirely new, like uh, the, the black African-American Islamic movement, for instance. The Nation of Islam is one of those, and that's why um, Malcolm X actually mentioned directly a couple, a couple times in this text. So anyways, this Vitarium, which is a small business, it doesn't have a lot of... Um, doesn't make a lot of money. It, its main advantage is the fact that it seems that Sebastian Hermes seems to know when people will wake up. He can go to a, you know, a, a graveyard and actually sense who's about to wake up. Um, but now with the possibility of awakening this Anarch Peak, they're they're in for a big cash grab. So they're setting up a plan to, to, awaken the Anarch Peak, and um, sell them to the highest bidder. So the uh, chapter five ends with them deciding that too many people have an interest in the awakening of Anarch Peak and too much the information has already got out that someone knows that the Anarch Peak is about to be revived. So they decide to break convention and get him out of the ground before he revives. Now, this is normally a big no-no, but they justify it because basically there's a fear that his competitors, people who don't want him to awaken, particularly uh, this man named um, uh, Raymond Roberts, who now runs the Udi Church, might want to just kill him to prevent competition. So they justify pulling him out. And that's where we were. So in chapter six, um, we, we basically see this Vitarium going to the grave of Anarch Peak and, um, you know, prepare to dig him out. They've decided to already commit to, to pulling him out of the ground and taking him to the Vitarium and quote-unquote kind of burying him in the Vitarium until he awakens, and then they'll go through the process of, of reviving him as, as normal. While they're there, though, they hear another voice of uh, an old-born, someone who's just woken in their grave, and this is a man named Harold Newton. So this is a bit of a distraction. Their main job was to, they wanted to just come in and get Anarch Peak and leave, but they have to deal with this other person first. Um, but mostly what we have in this chapter is a debate over the ethics of raising the Anarch now before he awakens. For instance, the, the clergyman who was with them. Now, the clergyman plays an important role. He, he goes through the sacraments of, of rebirth, and he also helps give spiritual guidance to these reborn to help them know what's going on. Um, from their point of view, they just died and woke up, although it seems they have some kind of afterlife experience, which is something we'll have to get into in this episode a little bit. Um, Here's what he says, though, from a religious standpoint. It's a violation of God's moral law. Rebirth must come in its own time. You, of all, ought to know that, since you underwith it yourself. So that's the major debate for keeping them under the ground, that it's God's will. It's, it's kind of the inverse of the, of the anti-abortion argument, right? Like, you can't stop a life that's already been conceived because it's God's will that they'll be born at a certain time, right? Or the way people say, like, if a child dies, it's God's will in some way or that he's in a better place. This is kind of the inverse argument of that, that the, revi the, the reviving takes place at God's time. And it, it seems that it's not, it's, there's not a clear timeline here. For instance, in the very first chapter, they awaken a woman named Tilly Benton. They find out about this woman and they wake her up. She died in 1974, yet Anarch Peak, who died in 1971, is about to be awoken at about the same time. So there's not a clear like day-by-day -day timeline. It's not that everyone who died on August 14th 
1970 is going to waken up on the same day. And they seem to have their own timeline because what happens is the the particles are actually brought back from wherever they were dispersed to. So when you die, your body's broken down, your particles end up all over, you know, the world really, eventually all over the universe. But uh, you know, it's a, they, they kind of have to travel back, and I guess it takes longer if those particles were kind of dispersed more f farther away than than others. So they complete the two jobs. Um, they they follow the, the normal procedure for the one who really was a revival, but for Anarch Peak, they just kind of take the body and, and run off with it. Um, how Sebastian, though, he starts to have a really bad feeling that he's going to regret doing this, not following the procedure. And so that's mostly what the debate is in Chapter 6, is just the proper way to do this. And is there kind of a theology behind this? And we're reminded once again that this world, a world in which the dead are literally rising from the dead, you know, has to be a world of religion. It, it can't be a world in which you have the atheist. It, it's hard to justify the atheist in this. I, I mean, even though the Hobart phase itself was identified by a scientist and seems to have a scientific expl explanation, there's too much evidence here that there's something else going on, right? The dead seem to have memories of the afterlife that, that are fairly common to them. Um, now, that's not really established yet in the story, but it will be that you know, mostly they forget it, like you, how, the way you forget a dream, but some people seem to remember it. Uh, people like uh, Sebastian Hermes seem to have a psychic connection to these revivals and know when they're going to be reborn. And just the whole experience is so wacky and, and so mystical that you have to almost believe in God. Now, it doesn't mean that everyone's a Christian, right? So there are new religious movements that, that fill in that, that gap. And interestingly, one of the major new religious movements, the Udi movement, is based on a kind of a drug-induced, well, the critics of it call it basically a drug-induced orgy, but it's a drug-induced collective hallucination, hallucinogenic experience, right? Kind of that, and this is a kind of a religious experience that Dick really likes and is very interested in, something he writes a lot about in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, that the black box, the empathy box um, stuff. Um, but anyways, we're in a religious world, uh, to be sure. Um, and in a religion, you have certain practices and processes you have to follow right you know you have to follow god's will in that but humans are kind of grasping at straws about what that actually is and of course with any theology there's always loopholes and and arguments you can make one way or another to get away from the law um so chapter seven um sebastian hermes wife who's a younger woman and i think she was nor she was normally born uh, she calls officer tinbane who was uh, we met in an earlier chapter he saw her in the library and she had to go to the library to research uh, the Anarch Peak, and she ran into Tim Bain there. And they, they, they start to have an attraction towards each other, so there's a lot of flirting in this particular chapter. Tim Bain has already started to get feelings for her, and he's quite interested when she calls. He's married, and of course, Lod is married to Sebastian Hermes. He promises, in a way, to justify meeting her. He promises that he's going to tell her all she needs to know about Ray Roberts. Now, the reason for this is... You know, after she got back from the library with her news about the whatever she could find out about the Anarch Peak, they send her kind of back to the library and say, "You got to find out everything about Ray Roberts, the guy who runs this Udi Church, to find out if he's going to try to kill the Anarch or whatever." And she hates going to the library. Her fear of the library is one of the funniest aspects of this novel. Um, but of course, here the library is a coercive, powerful institution. She wants to avoid going to the library, so she wants to have Tim Bain kind of go for her to tell her what she know, what he knows about Ray Roberts, and he promises to do that. It's just an excuse to kind of meet her, but she's trying to avoid the library trip. 
So they they go to a sulgum place. Sulgum's kind of what these people drink in this world. Um, it's kind of their, one of their main food supplies. Of course, the re, the revitalized people don't eat normal food. They regurgitate the food in its full form, put it in the refrigerator, and when they have enough, they have to kick it to the grocery store to be, I guess, disposed of. I I don't know. It's not explained where it goes from the grocery store. Maybe it goes to a farmer who then buries it. So while they're meeting, he confesses that he's starting to fall in love with her. Um, he does warn her about the Anarch stuff and how she already sort of spoke too much at the library, confessing that his, her company knows where the Anarch is buried. And he's kind of warning her to be careful with this. But he doesn't actually give her what she wants. He's kind of holding out for that. And when Lada hesitates, he basically kind of resentfully and and cruelly says, well, then you have to go to the library yourself to find out about Ray Roberts. I'm not going to tell you what I know. And so she's really horrified at this. And and then, you know, but they kind of flirt a little bit. So the foundation of the relationship is being built. But we see here that Tin Bane really acts quite cruelly towards Lada, who's obviously terrified of any thought of going to the, the, the library. Um, and then later, Lada then, of course, has to go to the library. She shows up at the library. Instead of going to the normal lower level, you know, workers there, because the library has regular workers who help you find information. Unfortunately, they're also like destroying a lot of information all the time, you know, eradicating it. And that's probably kind of what makes them a powerful force. Um, but people can still go there for, for information. She goes there and she ends up going to the office of Mavis McGuire, who's the top head of this branch or this kind of regional branch of the library. And she's not really welcome there. And Mavis gives her kind of the third degree about why you're talking to me. Why didn't you go to one of the other people? And she said, well, I couldn't find them and I needed this information. Finally, though, Mavis puts things together that she seems to know something about the Anarch Peak. Why else would she be asking about Ray Roberts? And so she decides to kidnap Lada and then have an Erad interrogate her. And the Erads are these people who are mostly responsible for destroying knowledge, but they also seem to have this coercive ability, this, this, this ability to extract knowledge from people. Um, and it seems that on some level, part of their eradication is, you know, killing off people. It's, I don't know if there's any kind of clear evidence of that, but it's strongly suggested that part of their eradication is getting rid of people who who have the knowledge because they can only eradicate the written word if you really want to destroy knowledge entirely you got to make sure it doesn't get written down again and, and that sometimes means offing people so there is this hard coercive um, aspect of the library their front face though their face is this gentle kind gentle neighborhood library you know this powerful institution or no this kind of folksy institution that just is providing a public service, but behind that all they have this this intense power. Um, so at the end of chapter seven, we, we, we learn that Mavis is planning to kidnap Lada. So sending her to the library was certainly a, uh, a bad idea. And Lada's fears proved to be, are proven to be correct. So in chapter eight, we start to get a, a clear discussion of, of the afterlife. And Sebastian starts to talk about his afterlife experiences, what he remembers. And he says, not only does he have some vague memories of his time when he was dead before he was revived, but he also has some, he's got these dreams from time to time. Um, and here's how he describes one of his dreams. A, a pulsating black presence beating like a huge heart, enormous and loud, going thump, thump, rising and falling in and out, and very angry, burning out everything in me, disapproving of, and it seems to be most of me. 
and a sense on my part of being so alive, I was absolutely living. By comparison, we're a spark of life in a lump that isn't alive. That the spark makes move around and t talk and act. But it was totally aware. Not of our eyes or ears, just aware. And he talks about this feeling of being kind of judged by, by God. And this is, of course, what happens on Judgment Day, right? This, this word, Judgment Day. It's not just the end of the world. It's actually the time that souls are finally judged and you go upstairs or downstairs, right? And that's how the other people who listen to him talking about it, you know, interpret it, that this is, this is the day of judgment you're speaking of. And he goes a little bit farther and he talks to his coworkers, his employees about this. And he, he gets the feeling from these dreams and his memories of being uh, dead is that what God wants out of people is to be small. Quote, we have to be little, so there are so many of us, so billions upon billions of separate creatures can live. If one of us were big, the same size as God, how many would there be? I see there's the only way which every potential soul can, and then he's, he's cut off. Because what he gets cut off by is the Anarch Peak starts to revive. Now, where do we see this in theology? I'm, I'm not a theologian, I'm not a philosopher, but uh, I am a historian, and my understanding is that Augustine, St. Augustine, who's actually quoted in some of the epigraphs of these chapters, has this idea about the smallness of, of human beings, right? And, and this, the danger of the arrogance of, of seeing ourselves as able to even understand God, right? That we can only really understand God through revelation and maybe creation, you know, the, the Bible, those words. To, to think that we can understand God on our own or, or to understand his mind is, is kind of futile, like we're really too small. And this is, of course, what Luther and the Protestants build off of in the Protestant Reformation. They kind of build off this Augustinian tradition. Um, so I don't know if that's what Dick is quite going for here. In fact, some of the other people are confused by this because like uh, Cheryl Vane, I think she's like the receptionist in the company. She, she doesn't understand why would God want us to feel insignificant or feel small, right? But it kind of fits in this Christian view of God as omnipotent, omniscient, and all-powerful. It's it, basically we have to be small because we're not those things, right? So the Anarch Peak wakes up, and he starts talking. He starts talking, and it seems to be some like profound theological uh, statement. Like I saw the Almighty Man. I saw him plainer than you see me now. You mustn't doubt. And Buckley, one of the workers at the Vitarium, identifies this as a James Stevens poem, an Irish poem. But he continues to recite this. Um, but then the Anarch says, I saw something small, and Sebastian responds to this, quote, How well he remembered that, terribly, completely small, the most meager iota in a universe of things. Now he too remembered this, the dissatisfied look, the raising of the hand, and then the stain of the hand, because he had said something. The Anarch's words in Buckley's had brought it back, the rest of the recollection, that terrifying, angry, lifted hand. And this is when you get the real clear sense that there's kind of a shared afterlife that these people are experiencing. And mostly they forget it, just the way same way we forget a dream. But at that moment of him reviving, he's able to, to touch base with that and remember it. And maybe this still like appears to people in dreams who have, who have been revived. So they explain to the Anarch what's happened and the Anarch kind of knows about this, the theory of the Hobart phase. So he, he kind of takes it in stride. And they have an interesting conversation about what's on his tombstone and the significance of that. Um, it seems that it's almost like a, it's the opposite of the idea of the eternal soul. 
is what the this the Latin words on the gravestone seem to admit, and it, it seems not to be his theological view, but it seems to be a bit of a uh, maybe as a bit of a sarcastic commentary on the anarch's life and, and philosophy. Um, now we switch scenes and we, we meet Appleford. Appleford is one of these erads at the library, and he calls this guy Jacko Giacometti at the at the Vatican in Rome, and the the Romans are going to play a small part in this competition over over the anarch. They're they're not the significant one, but they're they're interested in the anarch peak, maybe as a religious uh, as a competition or maybe. Um, for some other reason, but Appleford calls Giacometti about Peak, trying to get what information he can. Um, he had, they have a brief conversation, and then Mavis comes in, and she's all worked up about Lada's arrival and her interest in in Reynolds, her interest, her previous interest in Anarch Peak, and so she starts asking about Lada's requests and what she was asking for. And basically, she gets right down to it is that she's really concerned about the impact of a revived anarch on the knowledge industry, particularly like his book. He's, he wrote this book called God in the Box, which has been eradicated since, you know, since his death as part of the, this Hobart phase. And the fear is that if he wakes up, he's going to because there's a lot made here about his age, that he, he died around 50 years old. So he's going to rise at the peak of his powers and his abilities. So if he's going to start taking taking pen to paper again. He's going to start to write more and more radical books, maybe even more radical. And they didn't want new religions brought in, right? Their goal is to kind of work backwards in, in time, historically. So they're wondering, maybe they should bid for, for the Anarch. Maybe, you know, if the, this Vitarium just wakens up the Anarch, maybe they just ask for him, then they can eradicate or ensure that the Anarch does not produce any new knowledge that can be used by, that, that can come out into the world. So they also have Lata now, who they can begin to question. And we get this dark little sentence where we see just how much trouble Lata's in. In this situation where Sebastian Hermes married Anne would be especially efficient. Her specialty was in entering a man-woman relationship as a third party. This is, by the way, is Mavis's daughter, who becomes sort of a spy later on. Eventually driving out the wife or mistress, whatever, and reducing the number of players to two, herself and the man. A lot of luck, Mr. Hermes, he thought wily. And then he thought of timid little Mrs. Hermes, subjected to the explorations of an erad, and that made him uncomfortable. After the interrogation, Lada Hermes would be different. He wondered which way, for good or for worse. The interrogation would either make her or destroy her. It could go either way. He hoped for the former. He had liked the girl, but his hands were tied. Uh, so a pretty bleak future, it seems, for, for poor Lada Hermes. Um, chapter 9. So this chapter is mostly a, a set action piece. Which you know Dick does pretty well at. You know we sometimes complain that Dick's movies get made into action movies or chase movies, and really ignoring most of the ideas he has. I think that's that's mostly true. But Dick is capable of writing a pretty good action scene, and this is this is one of his better ones, I think. Uh, so Tin Bane basically he 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 he's learned that Lotta has been captured by the library, and he realizes he feels his guilt for being the one who basically pushed her there because she was a bit aloof with his. The sexual and romantic advances to her, which which forced her to go to the library. So he basically commits to going to save her. So he gears up, he takes all his police equipment and weapons, and he he goes to find her. He calls the Vitarian, finds out Lata's gone, so he realizes that she's still in the library. So he goes in with all his police infiltration tools, and we he's, we see all this wonderful tech he uses to to sneak in. And so I'm not going to get into too much detail about that. He does get in. He's able to 
um, break into the library, disable the the guards, and get Lata out and, and hide her away. Um, and at the end of this scene, Tinbane's able to apologize and begin to feel a little intimacy towards her. But maybe the most important issue here with the plot is what we learn about what is Mavis is concerned, the library is concerned in general, about eradicating uh, knowledge, particularly eradicating the knowledge of the of the Anarch. And it seems to have a lot to do with national unity. The United States has been broken up into three different states. We're in the Western, in this novel, we're in the Western part of the United States. But there are many more parts. And here's what she says during the interrogation to, to Lata. Can't you see how harmful this man is? How pandering to the proles, as he will do, try to do, will bring about more riots, more civil disobedience, not only the free Negro municipality, but also among Negroes and pro and white pro-Negroes on the West Coast. Don't forget Watts in Oakland and Detroit. Don't forget what you learned in school. A harsh, penetrating ear voice said, We might as well all be become part of the free Negro municipality when that happens. We've virtually done a complete ERAD job on God in a Box, Mavis McGuire said. His major track, or whatever you want to call it, is almost gone. Forever, it was God in the Box, which 30 years ago, before you were born, helped inflame mass sentiment, which brought about the creation of the FNM. The anarch was personally responsible. If he hadn't made speeches and sermons and written tracts, the FNM would never have been formed. And the whole United States, undivided, would still exist. Our country wouldn't have been chopped into three pieces. Four, if you count Hawaii and Alaska. They wouldn't have become separate nations. End quote. And there's going to be throughout the rest of the novel this obsession with associating kind of these new religious movements with urban disorder and the urban protests. And she, you know, they make mention several times of the actual Watts riot. Now that wasn't, as far as I know, had anything to do with any kind of black new religious movements. It had to do with the frustration of urban black people over the how civil rights did not really address their needs. Right? Civil rights dealt really with southern issues, segregation and and the right to vote and, and those kinds of things, but didn't really deal with some of the things black people were facing in the cities, right? Really things of like unemployment and poor housing and police violence. These are things that were more concentrated in the cities. And out of that, we get kind of the black power movement. But to hear Dick is kind of showing the libraries connecting kind of the new religious movements of urban blacks with and black nationalism with these with urban protests or connecting I'm, I'm sorry i'm connecting religious movements to black nationalism and these protests um, connecting them to both so but it's a very interesting and important statement by by mavis mcguire about why she takes this so seriously and how why it's so important in her view that the anarch does not get to speak again so chapter 10 is set back at the viterium um, first sebastian gets a call from lata explaining that she's safe and, and she's not dead and not still in the library. But they also talk about their relationship and she basically says that she's going to leave him for, for Tinbane, her savior, right? And, and he is sort of her, her savior. He saved her from the library. She says she loves him but has to leave at least for a while until she feels better. So there's sort of a break in the relationship. And so much of what's going to happen in the second half of the novel, we've kind of come to expect this from Dick, is this broken relationship that that the characters have to kind of repair through a new understanding about each other or a new kind of acceptance of the world that they, they live in and the, the situation they're in. Um, so that's, uh, that's the beginning of that plot line of, about the repa repairing Sebastian and Lada's relationship. Um, now a woman comes in, 
a, a young beautiful woman and there's dick spends a lot of time going into detail about how beautiful this woman is her name's miss fisher ann fisher and she's he doesn't know this yet but ann fisher is the daughter of of mavis mcguire and mavis earlier said she was going to send this woman as a essentially a spy so she comes in basically under the cover of negotiating a price for the old woman they had got way back in the first chapter that that um, Tilly Benton, Mrs. Benton. And of course, as we know, that's how these fighterians make money as they essentially sell these people's bodies to loved ones or to companies or to whoever might want them. Right. And that's how they're hoping to make money off the off the anarch. Um, so that's going on. And Sebastian Hermes immediately is heavily attracted to to Miss Fisher very conveniently just when he was told he was being dumped essentially by by his wife much of the rest of the chapter is is a conversation with the anarch about the the state of the Udi church that the church that he founded and he gets his news about it he doesn't seem to know this um, Roberts guy who's running the church now uh, he doesn't he's not really aware of him um, there's this idea here, and it's actually st stated quite directly here, that the fate of all religions is going to be, they're going to become hollow institutions. That the farther they get away from their, their core theology, the farther away they're going to get from the truth, right? The same way that the revitalizers, the people who are revived, the farther they get away from their death or their rebirth, the less likely they're going to remember the afterlife, right? So we kind of are distant from these key moments in our life. I think that's partially why Dick is interested in this birth-death thing like we spend most of our time pretty far from death at least we hope so and pretty far from our birth and we, we don't have memories of, of of birth right and so in the same way when we're reborn we're, we're not going to have memories of those early days after we're reborn especially not of the of the afterlife but in the same way institutions as they get farther from the origin become kind of corrupted and hollowed out and so he's very concerned about the fate of his 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 religion so they have that conversation and then we're back to sebastian talking to miss fisher and miss fisher says like while i'm here i need help with something and she says i you know had a baby in me right actually it was a, a revitalized person who, who got younger and younger and finally was a little baby had to crawl into a womb and i wanted this baby so i let him crawl into my womb and that was nine months ago and now to finish the process to kind of vanish this soul out of existence, I need to have sex with a man. That's the way it works, right? It doesn't have to be the father. It can just be any man, which I think is kind of a wild um, idea here. But he says, will you sleep with me? Will you just help me complete this? And of course, Sebastian can't, um, can't refuse. And the next scene has them in Fisher's apartment. And he makes the immediate mistake of, of confessing to Miss Fisher that, that he's revived the Anarch Peak. And they're actually talking about theology a little bit, um, as he's apt to do. And he says, well, there's this idea of God that which I just learned from the Anarch Peak. We revived him today. And then she immediately wants to kind of be involved in this process. And of course, she's a spy of the library. Um, Sebastian doesn't know that yet, but he does make this, this big mistake in kind of confessing what, what they have. And so that's chapter 10. Um, so a lot of pieces are in place here. Um, really, the rest of the novel is going to be about the fate of Anarch Peak and the fate of Sebastian and Lata's relationship. Um, there's going to be several different factions that are interested in acquiring the Anarch Peak now that it's known openly that he's alive. We already know that uh, 
library is interested in him because they want to eradicate his knowledge. Um, but the Udite movement is interested, but we don't know why. Are they interested in him as a spiritual leader or are they interested in him to kill him because they don't want him to compete with the current leadership? And we know that Rome has a bit of interest in him. Well, it's never as clearly stated why Rome has a, has an interest in him. It seems more they're, they're just kind of keeping in touch and, and keeping in the picture a little bit, but they don't become a major player. So that's going to be one theme that goes throughout the rest of the story. Another is going to be really Sebastian and Lata's relationship and how that how that turns out. And then, of course, there's going to be continued theological discussions about what all this dead coming back from the grave really, really means. So um, that's part two. That's about halfway through Counterclock World, if you're reading along. In the next episode, I'll look at chapters 11 through 15, I believe. Um, getting us to the to the climax of of the novel. So as always, thanks for listening. If you have any of your own thoughts about Counterclock World, especially this part of the novel, please leave them below or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com and I'll try to respond to your, your thoughts on air. Um, yeah, so that's it for now. I'll see you next time. You must you find the you will find peace and contentment forever if you